namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami evening nice to be in the gta it was never called gta in my day Toronto. So, what should we think about? Perhaps we could just first consider how we uh, how we learn. An example of how we learn is the volume okay for everyone? A bit more, me or him? He, she wants it up more. How's that? Okay. All right, everyone. Yep. Uh, so, consider how you cook an egg. So, if you want to cook an egg, you've got to. First, you have to purchase it, and you have to understand something about eggs, how you transport them. Right? So it's not a, a juice carton. An egg has a certain delicacy. Then you have to store it in the fridge. And then when you decide to cook it, you have to decide to take it out of the fridge. You can't just take it out like a bottle of milk. And then you have to figure out, well, well how am I going to cook this thing? So you have to know how to cook an egg. If you decide you're going to fry it, then you have to know how to crack an egg open. It's a skill in itself, isn't it? And then you have to get some heat source. And then you have to put some, maybe, oil in a pan or butter. Yeah. And then you pop the egg on. I haven't cooked for 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have. I, I cooked for my mom sometimes. Anyway, and then you have to kind of know how much time, what heat you have, and then you have to take it, figure out how to take it off the pan and not splatter all over the place. And then if you have a few eggs you're doing, if you've got a big family, you might keep it warm in the oven, and you serve it up. And all of that, all that you do is according to the law of eggs, right? It's not according to your will or some theory of eggs. Uh, it's according to the nature of heat, to the nature of metal, to the nature of oil, to the nature of the egg. So you have to submit yourself to the authority of the egg, correct? If you don't, Right? You'll break the egg when you transport it, or it'll get rotten because you didn't store it. Or So you have to submit yourself to the dharma of the egg, to the reality of the way eggs can be cooked. And that gives you then a certain amount of, once you understand that principle, the principles of that, then gives you a certain amount of creativity and a possibility in life. You can now cook eggs. But also, you might get some ideas how you can make other things. 
Um, so, in the same way, we, we, we learn about, about peace, because I think we're all interested in peace, because there's a very peaceful sitting, and so many people sitting so- quietly together, it's rather marvelous. Uh, we're interested in peace to, to, to understand the nature of peace and the nature of non-peace, say, we have to submit to the nature of non-peace. We have to understand that, just as you have to understand the nature of, of, uh, of the egg. You have to submit to the Dharma. And the Dharma is not according to my views and opinions. If they're wrong, they're wrong. The Dharma is as it is. Truth is the way it is. The nature of eggs and heat is the way they are, and and that 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 flavor of practice, looking at the reality of things, and understanding the way things are, gives each of us a certain amount of freedom and flexibility and and, and functioning in the world, which is very wholesome because it's in line with Dhamma. And right, I say right now, I'm. We've got a. We've got a fabulous workshop now at the monastery, and uh, I'm the I'm the old man in the monastery, so I'm learning woodwork. I think all men old men like to do woodwork and gardening. <laughs> I cancelled four retreats this year, and I just hang out in the monastery, and so I've been learning woodwork. Very nice. We have a lot of good power tools, and um, I have a, a good friend who donated a lot of the tools, and he's a very good cabinet maker and so I have to submit to the nature of the power tool first of all when I was working in New Zealand I put my thumb through a table saw this thumb is now shorter than that one and they packed cold peas around it and they rushed me to the hospital never liked cold peas since (laughs) so that was Submitting to my uh, heedlessness, or submitted to my restlessness, or uh, not really being uh, attentive to the nature of this beast called a table saw, and pay the price. Um, and in my own nature, I, I ha- I'm not very good at planning. So if I start a, wo- I start a woodworking project, I'm, I'm kind of impatient. So I just want to get in there and I start cutting wood up and then I hope no one comes in the workshop at that time because <laughs> i got pieces of wood all over the place. So that's one thing I'd like to work on and I'm not very good at finishing. I get impatient, I want to get finished, so a lot of impatience. So by, by applying myself to the nature of wood, to the nature of the grain of the wood, to the type of power tool I'm using when I'm using a jointer or a thickness or the table saw or, or whatever, um, I not only have a chance to maybe make a nice product, but I also have a chance to develop myself in a way which is quite wholesome. And that, I think we've all done this lifetime, haven't we? We've used, we've used our, our family responsibilities, we've used our, our educational possibilities, um, we've used... Uh, the kind of um, tendencies that maybe we're good at, intellectual or manual or whatever it is, to develop character, to develop uh, just a sense of being a a wholesome um, person in society. And this is important. 
and, and the development of character is one of the ways we talk about Buddhism. We, talk, we, we call it the parami, you've probably seen that word, paramitas, the development of these virtuous qualities, patience, morality, generosity, kindness, compassion, equanimity, determination, these kinds of qualities which aren't really, like, they're not, they're not I don't see them the same as personality. I think all, my personality is not going to change very much with woodwork. I'm still going to be sort of a Viradhammo type. But the, the, the kind of character traits which I'd like to work on in this particular endeavor are, are things that I, I often see in myself, which um, they're, not, they're not evil, they're not bad, but I just think my, my life, my whole life, will be more wholesome and more rewarding if I can do that. So I have, a, I have two things. I have just the joy of learning something new. I like to learn new things. Hopefully I'll keep my fingers for another few years. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the joy of developing character, developing as a human being. So much of my life has been that, and, and the, some of the higher teachings of not-self, and uh, you know, these very high teachings and emptiness, they're important, but just the nitty-gritty of a, of a life lived with the intention of being a good person. It's, it's very important, isn't it? Very, very important. And that's not to be dismissed. Sometimes maybe like meditation doesn't really go very well for us at times and we get very critical. But if you think of all the good things that you've done as a human being to get you here, and the people you've cared for, uh, the skills that you've developed, uh, the endurance you've had to... Uh, I was just talking to Jim and Margaret about their uh, bringing up their kids, and they're really good parents, really good parents. And I thought, wow, I'd learn a lot there. I was I, I said to them, I'd be a rotten father. I would just say, whatever. <laughs> I'd be a hopeless father. Uh, Jim and Margaret, they're really, really good. So there's, a, you know, there's, there's that part of our life which is it's not particularly Buddhist. It's just wholesome. It's just very, very good. Um, and that, like for me, the way I've become a mature male is uh, growing up in a, in a male community, um, having mentors, uh, having guidelines, having um, ways of sharing resources, having to submit myself to elders, um, having to do a lot of things which I don't want to do. We've all had that, haven't we? We've all, all had that. And if you see that as, it's kind of very mundane, but if you always look at that as, as the way of developing character, then that is a basis for enlightenment. Because those, those character traits which are patient, which are, are willing to bear witness to difficult things, which are, are forgiving, <clears throat> which are compassionate in a way where we can accept a lot of things into our consciousness, into our social space, into our mental space. All those abilities and capacities are really a foundation for enlightenment. And in, in the kind of allegorical way, when we talk about Gautama Buddha, you know, we talk about the previous lives of the Buddha. And for me, that's a kind of mythical, allegorical way of talking about human beings developing skills developing uh, skillful means, developing character. That's very important, very important. Some of the higher teachings, if you don't have that, then 
uh, it's, then it just becomes a kind of tranquilizing experience, but the rest of life just seems to be chaotic. In our, in our monastery, we have now growing quite well, we have about seven monks now, and we get uh, a number of young men interested, you know, they're 20, 22, 23, 24, interested in monasticism. Not many really take it up, because it's pretty daunting, I think. Um, but every now and then someone uh, jumps in at the deep end. And it's interesting how some young men have, they really haven't really developed any, any skills, any, any skills of just like, which end of a shovel do you hold kind of thing. And, you know, they, they're really good at video games. <laughs> or they know incredible lists of movies. So they say, yeah, but, but can you um, bake bread? No, 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 I don't know how to bake bread. Um, fix a chainsaw? Uh, don't know, no. Use a chainsaw? No. Strimmer? No, no. Oh, okay. Video games? Hmm. So they want to get on the computers. You know, they want to know a way. No, no. And, and so... Then, then they, you know, they, they get sort of like mentorship, and someone will take them aside. Well, this is this is how you sharpen a chainsaw, and this is the kind of fuel you use, uh, and these are chaps, and this is a helmet, and this is dangerous, and da 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 da. And okay, so now you sharpen it, and now you fix that, and you did that, and it's really lovely to see how a young man who has good aspiration, but no real cultural training on the wisdom of the hands, the wisdom of things, how to cook an egg, right? That's, there's, there's an intelligence, the intelligence of things, and, and, and how they, they might come to us like they may, may have done some retreats, so they think you know, meditation is where it's at. All they've really learned how to do is tranquilize the mind. So they come in and they can zonk their minds out for a while, you don't sense there's much wisdom there. There's just a capacity of sense deprivation, and there's not much wisdom there. And then that doesn't last long. That's interesting. It doesn't really last that long, because monastic life is ordinary life. You have to relate with people, have to do work. It's ordinary life. <clears throat> and that's the disadvantage of monastic life. It's like lay people think, oh, I'd love to be a monk, but sometimes it can be too artificial, I suppose, too kind of unreal. We try to make it real. So then you find, like, maybe a young person, young man, he'll, he'll pick up how to, you know, how, to, how to drive a tractor, or, or how to pour cement, or uh, how to actually run a chainsaw, and how to fix a chainsaw. And, and you see this kind of confidence growing in him, this sense of, of self-worth and confidence, and, and that's the intelligence of the hands, the intelligence of things. And you, you know what you see? You see their meditation becomes better. Their meditation is much more reflective, much more contemplative, no longer a willful attempt to just suppress thought and get rid of emotion and somehow stay with this meditation object until they boing their way to Nibbana. You know, it's like more real. And, and I think that, that ability to cook an egg, you know, that capacity to look and see, how does this work? You know, what do, I, what do I need to do to make this happen? 
is different than just the willful suppression of things, you know, just the willful control of the mind in some kind of way, which, which doesn't work for that very long. So the, the capacity then to, to do things with the hands and makes them much better people, you know, much better human being. Uh, and we get our chainsaws fixed, <laughs> which I like. Um, and also, then they, they participate in the community more. You know, they, they, they have a way of contributing to the community. They have a sense of confidence. They're not just little boys anymore who, uh, who need to go into the bedroom and play video games. Uh, and, and they mature and they grow. And that maturity and that growth then contributes to their meditation practice. Because they sit now. They sit now with a sense of, yeah, I'm a worthy being. And I've done, I've done, I can do something. I can, I can contribute. And, and so all of that is, is, is important in the spiritual life, isn't it? And all of you, you have responsibilities and you have mortgages and, or, and uh, those are kind of daunting things sometimes, but do realize that those are equally important to sitting quietly, aren't they? To, do, to compartmentalize, I think, um, the meditative life to be something which is simply a zafu experience done cross-legged or on a bench or whatever, and then to somehow say that the rest of life is inferior or I want to get rid of the rest of the life so I can do this real thing called meditation would be a loss of opportunity and would be um, a kind of negation of much of life because much of life is not sitting on a zafu. So the, the, the attitude, that obviously, that we're trying to, to bring to all all aspects of our life is, is the attitude of, of reflective awareness, of a mind which can awaken to how you're impacted by, you know, by people, by society, by life, by age, whatever it is, and say, what, what is it? What is it in this situation that I can't really surrender to or learn from? Because this situation is the authority, not my desires. My desires, of course, uh, sometimes they are fulfilled. 5% of the time, <laughs> right? Uh, but the, the capacity to awaken and know the way things are, that's not 5%. That's, you know, it's always possible. So in the meditation, I suggested that I felt hot. And uh, the, the heat was uncomfortable. And now that discomfort is very natural. It's, it's not unnatural to feel discomfort, is it? So what's the problem? And if I, if, I, if I say, well, the authority is now the body rather than my desire pattern, and the body's feeling uncomfortable because hot, I could do something. I can open window or ask Randy to per- turn on the uh, air conditioner, which I might, which is fine, but in this case I didn't. And so then awakening to the feeling of discomfort is peace. That's, that's peaceful. That's peaceful. Discomfort is, ne- is, is unpleasant, but awakening to the unpleasant is peaceful. So the peace then is no longer dependent on the experience or the condition, but it's more like cooking an egg. You know, I, I give myself to the nature of the body, and the nature of the body is that it feels discomfort and pain, and I do as much as I want, you know, put a bit of oil on or whatever, try to get the temperature right. And I do that. I'm not some kind of blind ascetic. Um, but inevitably, 
uh, I can get it right 5% of the time. Yeah, so discomfort or pain or whatever is, is a natural thing, just like the fragility of the egg is a natural thing. And submitting myself to, to the nature, to the dharma of the body, uh, is the awareness of the way things are, satipanya. Yeah? Satipanya. And we have, this, we have this quality of consciousness which can discern, can't it? When I, when I suggest to you, no see in-breath, no see out-breath. No see in-breath. It's different, isn't it? It's different. And you can, you can notice the difference. You don't have to think about the difference. You just notice the quality of in. It's different than the quality of out. That's discernment. And that's the kind of intelligence there which isn't... It's the intelligence of things. You know, this thing called breath moves in this particular way and feels in this particular way. I don't have to think about that. I don't need a PhD for that. In fact, if I have a PhD, I might be thinking about breathing and not actually noticing my breath or something like that because I think too much or whatever. But just to notice, so, yeah. And that, just that simple exercise of in, out, and the discernment of that is peace. It's peace because you're, 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 you're knowing Dharma, the Dharma of the breath. That's peace. The mind is peaceful then. Might not last for long. You might be off to planning your next whatever, or resenting something that happened to you, and so on and so forth. Uh, but that that moment of discernment—that's peace. And to value that, and to make that important in one's life, is very, very fruitful. Um, so, in in the meditation, I suggested um, not, notice the end of thought. This is this is very, very. Uh, important and helpful in the contemplative life because thought is an object which is stimulated by activities that you've done, habits that you are engaged in, types of mentality that you are uh, habituated to. And, and so it arises when the conditions are right. And I, I say to people, they say, oh, I think too much. I say, if you think too much, then stop thinking. If you're the thinker, stop thinking. You can't do it, can you? Because you're not the thinker. Thinking is stimulated, and it's a condition in nature. Just as the heat of the body is a condition in nature. So this thought is a condition in nature. It comes up according to causes and conditions. So you're sitting there, and let's say you were on the phone the afternoon, because you're planning a trip to Washington, and guess who's going to Washington? And... Um, and then you sit here, and the thought about Washington comes up. Well, what else would come up? Timbuktu? Couldn't come up. So it's natural. It's a nat- thought's natural. Uh, but we, as meditators, quite often, we, we try to get rid of thinking, which seems like a good thing to do, because it just jabbers on, like you get so fed up with it that shut up up there, right? And we all have that. But does that really work? Is that... Can you, can you really um, put an end to thinking by more thinking? Well, we try that, don't we? I certainly try. Why am I thinking so much? <laughs> how, many, how many of us have done that for ten minutes? I wonder what the real root of my thinking is. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Because you don't know how to cook the egg yet. Right? But, may I suggest... <laughs> If you notice the end of a thought, right? now noticing the end of a thought is different than analyzing while you're thinking so much. So as, as you're meditating, what will happen is some kind of thought patterns will come up, 
and you'll uh, and someone you get some pain in the back or in the knee or someone will cough or the sound of something will interrupt the thinking process and then you'll notice that you've been thinking now in that moment they actually thought has stopped it has but we are so conditioned then to try to find another condition called no thought that we go to the breath or and we don't actually notice the end of thought it's kind of like if you're if you're in your bedroom and you've just had a shower and the uh, and you've had the, the fan on in the shower and you're sitting in your bedroom maybe reading something and all of a sudden you hear the shower stop the the shower fan stop a kind of moment of peace yeah? and that's happening when you notice that you've been thinking it's the end of thought and so the suggestion is rather than trying to get rid of thought notice thought as an object and as you start to do that you notice that oh it's stopped you don't I mean, you don't even say anything right then you just notice, and you, you begin to touch the silence of the mind. You touch it, you just touch it. Right? Now, the, the, the desire mind, what it does, it's kind of programmed to try to get rid of thoughts. So then, I've been thinking too much, and then you put your attention on the object of awareness with tremendous force and vigor and all of that. And if you do it enough, you'll think more, won't you? You know, we've all done that. Those of us have been meditating for a while. But to notice the end of a thought, and then just to wait, just to wait, see what happens. If you, if you pursue that way of practice, then you begin to see the beginning of a thought too. You get to see thought as an object, it comes and goes. And all of this is happening in awareness. So you begin to see that awareness contains all thoughts, all feelings, all emotions, all memories, all projections, all bodily feelings and sights and sounds and tastes. The whole business is happening in awareness. And that, that shift from I am someone here and the sound is out there, shifting from that perception to sound is in awareness is a very interesting perception to investigate or pursue. So that's what I suggested on this meditation. So I said, listen to sound and feel your hands. Right? So you think, well, the, the thought is, the, you know, sound is kind of out there. The traffic sound is out there. And my body is, is kind of in here. But if you notice, if you just do that as a dharma experiment, as it were, not, not as a belief thing, but you actually have to do this. And so that means you have to be quiet. You have to be attentive. And then you notice. And you notice that awareness actually doesn't change. And that things arise and cease in awareness. And that's a perception you, you can develop. Uh, and, and Buddhism uses, uses two, two sets of perceptions, the way I see it. One is the, the perception of developing of character. And the other is the perception of phenomena arising and ceasing in awareness. So the perceptions of developing character are where we use the sense of I. I am Viradhamu. I have a health card, I have a visa uh, for Thailand or wherever I'm going, uh, Singapore, and uh, I take statins, etc., <laughs> etc. Et That's the me. And I have responsibilities. And within that, I'm challenged, and, and within that, I try to develop character. 
But also, and that's one perception which isn't inaccurate, there's another way to perceive my life, and that is that there's the feeling of heat, a memory comes and goes, thought comes and goes, and this is happening in awareness. And this is, I think this is what's unique about Buddhism. The development of character I don't think is unique. I mean, my granny was telling me stuff that, you know, she was a wise woman, my mom. So there's, there's lots of wisdom that way. But the, I think the unique perspective of Buddhism is this phenomenological approach to experience rather than the self-approach to experience. And that's missing it. Like we, we, we are individuals. We have individual responsibility. We have moral responsibility. I can't just say, well, it's not self. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll kill the deer or I'll do what I want. No, there is moral responsibility, and an individual has that. But also, I can, I can notice that the sound, which seems to be outside, over there, which it is on a conventional level, is also in awareness. And that's a difficult perception to develop. That's a difficult perception to develop, because it seems kind of counterintuitive. And that, per- that perception, you, usually we try to combine that with a perception of change. Now, when I can... When I can notice, like a, like a, 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 an emotional condition, let's say, let's say uh, I, uh, you know how sometimes you have a crazy attack? <laughs> Maybe like you feel hypercritical to everyone, or like hyper-anxious. Oh, I'm sure none of you suffer like that. Or <laughs> you're just kind of really craving something stupid, or, or, or you know, feeling guilt, or you know, it's just easy. I call them crazy attacks. Do you have some? Anyone? Yeah. I get them. They come, you know. This is this crazy. Oh, well, here we go. And and the mind's just coming at you, you know, with this kind of habitual karmic energy and force. Oh, wow, what is this about? How do you deal with that? And what's the path of peace there? Well, if you understand, first of all, character, patience, endurance, determination, and so on and you perceive it as something that's changing, rather than being a personal fault, you still live morally, you're still responsible in your, in your social frameworks, but you now perceive this, that this is happening in awareness, and you're perceiving it as something that's changing in awareness. Huh? And that's difficult to do, because we take it personally. We think, oh, I lost the plot. I mean, I thought I had this one covered 20 years ago, and it's just coming back, and it might practice down the tube, and, you know, maybe Valium or something. I don't know. It's not, it's not good. And that's thought. That's thought. That's in awareness. But we're no longer in the perception of change. We're in the perception of self. You know, I'm a terrible person, or my practice isn't working. But the perception of change is that this is an object has arisen. It has energy. It has feeling. It has thought in it. And it's moving, it's changing, it's happening in awareness. Now, if you do that with the crazy attacks, if you do that with the crazy attacks, what you find is if you can just let it be the way it is and let it run without addition, without getting rid of, without justifying, just notice it, let it be fully conscious. And this is hard to do. Let it be fully conscious. Then it will cease because its fuel is not infinite. Its nature is to change. It'll come back at you. But in the ceasing, you'll begin to touch the silence of the mind, which is not dependent on conditions. Because you haven't, you haven't looked for a replacement, and you haven't 
you haven't sought a compensation. You've been with the Dharma of this crazy attack as it is. And the way it is, it's anicca dukkanatta, it's something that has arisen for some karmic reason, runs through your consciousness for a while, and then ceases. And when you can see these kinds of things cease in your own mind, you get tremendous confidence in awareness of change. Because you see, it does, it is the path of peace. You're still socially responsible. And you can see to do that, if you get crazy attack, you have, you have to be patient. And what do you do? You need faith. What do you have faith in? I, I often ask that to people. What, what's your faith? When the crazy attack comes, what's your faith? And for me, it's faith and awareness of change. Totally trust that. Totally trust that. But before, you know, before I understood that, you know, my, 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 my faith was in kind of some kind of replacement. Which is okay. So, I, you know, I'd feel anger, so I'd try to replace it with love. Seems like the logical thing to do. But what I was doing is just trying to get rid of the anger to have the love. May you be well, may you be well, may you be well. I hate you, I hate you, may you be well, may you be well. May you be well. And somehow it just didn't, didn't gel. Now at other times, when I really, really felt love, then I would stimulate that. You know, yeah, this is good, this is good wholesome emotion, this is good connection. And I would stimulate that. When the crazy attacks happened, I found that what worked well for me was enduring the storm and not taking it personally. And then in that cessation, I began to touch, yeah, there's a, there's a vast space back there. You know, you just be patient. You just bear with this difficulty. In the analytical mind, no, you got to do something. And that's the desire mind. The desire mind does not like the unpleasant. And what's more unpleasant than a crazy attack? And it's really unpleasant, much more than, than heat in the body. And so, faith. What do I trust in? Do I trust in me always trying to reorganize everything and control everything? Yes, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's appropriate. So if I'm just dwelling in, in resentment towards someone in a kind of unforgiving way, and I keep um, just indulging in whining, whinging thoughts, then no, don't go there. Don't do that. But sometimes, you, you know, like a crazy attack is kind of different. It's just like the old karma coming at you. And, and if you, it's like a storm that you have to live through. And you live through it, and because you totally trust in awareness of change, it goes into silence and you realize, yeah, that's the path. It's awareness of change rather than trying to change all the time, trying to get rid of. This takes courage. All right? This takes courage. If someone would come to me and they wanted to, you know, to kill someone, I'd, you know, I'd probably talk them out of it. It's not a good thing to do. So it has to be within moral boundaries. And it's more like graduate work. You know, this is an undergraduate work. Undergraduate work is, you know, watch your breath and stay there. kind of. But for those who have been meditating for a while, you get tired of control, don't you? You get tired of techniques. I, I did long ago. And you're more interested in the way things are. Like, what is life? What is consciousness? And why does this, this way of, of a self keep recreating itself through habit patterns that, that seem so absurd and ridiculous and childish? And why don't they cease? Why do they repeat themselves? Huh? This is learning how to cook the egg. What is the dharma of habit and what is the cessation of habit? How does it work in the mind? And that, that's, the, that's the intelligence of, of things. That's the intelligence of observing the way things are, causes suffering and the end of suffering. So the, the, uh, 
the, the, the human consciousness has, you know, you have vast possibilities of, of, of silence and compassion and peace, but the roadway there sometimes, it, develop, it, it, it requires development of character, you know, like moral character, you know, all those good things that, that we've all tried to develop as human beings this lifetime, but there's this extra bit, there's this extra bit which is makes, you know, Buddhism a, a, a spiritual practice. It's not just about me being some kind of really neat character that can make nice box joints, <laughs> put myself on YouTube or something, monk making monk box joints. <laughs> but rather, it's about touching something that no condition is. No condition is silent. All conditions change. So it becomes this interesting reversal that all conditions point to awareness. All phenomena point to awareness. All happenings point to awareness. All emotions point to awareness. Because they, can, they don't take place in any other space except in awareness. In awareness. And you, on the spiritual path, you make this kind of reverse. Oh yeah, it's not about the experience. It's about the awareness of experience. And then you see that all experience has this possibility of awakening. You can awaken to anything. You know, most horrific kind of thinking patterns. Think, wow, that is horrific. This is a bad movie. And you're in awareness. And you just have to bear with the bad movie. That's where character comes in. If you got a bad movie, okay. Bear witness to it. But your faith now is no longer in the object of awareness. It's in the awareness of change. And to, and to sustain the perception of change, what do you have to do? You know, we talk about anicca and change in Buddhism a lot, don't we? And it's not just a simplistic kind of idea, oh, the weather's changing today. Well, of course it's changing today. It doesn't take a Buddha, you know, to know that winter's going to come after autumn. So it's got to be something more profound, right? It's got, and what, what is the profundity of that? For me... It's the sustaining of a, a certain type of focus. And it's the focus on a certain type of, of perception. Yeah? And this, the, this is a kind of samadhi. It's called lakana samadhi. Lakana means characteristic. And it's the focus on the characteristic of change on all conditions. And when you do that, and it's, it's, it's difficult to do because your mind just attaches to conditions. But when you can sustain that kind of awareness, you see that that is peace. That is peace itself. Even if the condition is uh, difficult or unpleasant, you begin to see, yeah, that's where it's at. And then you don't have to rearrange and change and organize yourself to be the perfect person anymore. And yet you probably are a much better person. You're a much, much better person. So feelings of guilt come up. You get a guilt attack. A lot of people get guilt attacks, right? It's our cultural thing, it seems. Or shame attacks, or things like that. And they, oh gosh, I'm a terrible person, I did this. And No, this is shame. Shame has arisen. It feels awful, and awfulness feels this way. And what, is it, what, what does it really feel like to be awful? To be fully conscious of that? Wait, and wait, and watch. And it ceases. And you're not that. You're not the shame. You're not the guilt. These are just conditions culturally put into us unfortunate family situations, whatever, whatever it might be. So in each situation, there's a kind of possibility of freedom, possibility of practice, which is rather wonderful, rather wonderful. And then you can make your little boxes, and <laughs> but you develop as a human being, you know, really, really skillfully.
All right, I'll leave that for your reflection.